Create an Unstoppable Life, episode 172. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. Welcome back, my friends, to an extraordinary episode. You're going to meet an extraordinary woman, someone who uses her time, her talents, her network to really build up the lives of others. So let me introduce you to Dr. Connie Mariano, also Admiral Connie Mariano. She's so many things to so many people, and she shares with us a wealth of experience, lots of insight, lots of wisdom, and lots of care and concern for all humans. Enjoy the episode. I will see you again next week. Ciao. Welcome back to another episode. I am so excited about this one because one, happy new year. Two, you get to meet Dr. Connie Mariano and she is a doctor who has done a number of very significant things. She's been a first flag officer from USIS, the medical school I went to, the first Asian Pacific Islander flag officer, I believe for the Navy. She's a White House physician. She's an author. She's in private practice. She leads an extraordinary life and she's an amazing soul. And it's so welcome. That's how I'd introduce you. How would you introduce you? I think it's beautiful. I I think I'm honored to have those titles. And also definitely the most important, I think, is soul. I think for your audience, we have many titles, right? We're daughters, we're sisters, we're, we're wives, we're mothers. In my case, I had been a divorcee. Uh, and then a bride again, and then a grandmother, and then a widow. So you're you're sort of checking the boxes about the roles that we play in our lifetime. You mean so much to me, and you mean so much to Lori and Jillian and Amy, as far as the mentorship that you've provided. We truly can't thank you enough. I think what stands out is how gracious you are, warm and gracious. What I sense in the times that we meet is that you're looking for opportunities and you're looking for connection and how to expand that for people that you come into contact with. How do you do it? (laughs) You know, you're so sweet. I I am so blessed. It's almost like a bartender with, with people. In other words, it's mixology. When I see a group of people, I always think, well, how would these people get along? How can we help each other? These connections that I have, I always go, who can I get to help us with the situation? I got a text from somebody the other day from my my hairdresser who introduced me to this lady in her salon. And this lady's daughter is in Washington, D.C. now, and she's been ill and she needs a doctor in D.C. And I said, well, I know some people there. So I just emailed my friend at Georgetown and we're lining her up with a doctor there. And I had mentioned to you earlier that I'm going to Washington on Monday because I've been chosen by the secretary of the Navy to be a co-sponsor of the newest guided missile destroyer that will be launched named the USS Trinidad. And the um, Trinidad is named after Telesforo Trinidad, who is the only Filipino American in US history to win them to not be able to win. They received the Medal of Honor. So I and his great granddaughter will be christening the, the vessel in 2028. So I will get to meet her. And she had gone to my undergraduate school about 40 years later. So we'll get to meet and I get to meet the Filipino American community 
and that I'm having dinner with uh, my predecessor and one of my successors at the White House. So you're, you always have these spheres of influence of people who come to your lives. But I always find it interesting that one contact back in D.C. 17 years ago is going to help me find the doctor for this lady in Scottsdale, whose daughter in D.C. So, you know, what a small world. And I always say, how can this connection help me with somebody else? There's a reason I'm meeting certain people. What is the reason? And you file that in the back of your mind and you don't bring your bridges. I always tell people, don't bring your bridges. You never know when you're going to need that person to help you. One of my favorite stories, I read it in your book first and then had the great honor of hearing it from you is the promotion to Admiral and your parents being there, but specifically your dad being there and how meaningful it sounds. Would you share that? Oh, absolutely. Because it's an American story. My father, who passed about, oh gosh, four years ago at 94 uh, in California, he he was from the Philippines, both parents were, and he was very poor. His mother died of childbirth when he was 12 years old and his father remarried and he just struggled all his life. So in the 1940s, 1946, my father joined the U.S. Navy because the Navy and the United States had an agreement that if you're Filipino-American national, uh, they would enlist you in the U.S. Navy and you become an American citizen and you serve and you got your, you know great opportunities. So he and his uncles and his brothers all joined the Navy. It was a way out of poverty. And so he served 30 years in the homes of admirals. Most of that time, he was a steward or mess specialist where he would place the uniforms, prepare the uniforms for the admiral. They would cook in the kitchen. I saw the admiral's quarters through the kitchen. I'd visit my dad in the kitchen with all the other mess specialists who were usually Filipino or African-American back then. And it would be Christmas time. And there's a swinging door with glass on it. And you'd look in. And you can see the Christmas tree. And this is, you know, the homes of the admirals and in their quarters in Makalapa, Hawaii, or Sangley Point, or wherever it was they were stationed, or at the Navy Yard in, in the DC district. When it came time for me to p- promote it to Rear Admiral, um, the president and first lady said, Where do you want your promotion ceremony? I said, I would like it in the state dining room of the White House because my people served here. This is where we came from in the state dining room. And there's this beautiful portrait of Abraham Lincoln over the mantle in the dining room where he's leaning down like this. And so when they did my promotion ceremony, Lincoln looks like he's looking down on the scene when I'm doing the oath of office. And I had my uh, summer whites on with shoulder boards. So my sons were 12 and 14 and they each removed a shoulder board. And then my husband at the time, Richard, he placed one shoulder board and the other shoulder board was by, placed by my father, uh, who was retired Navy. And when my father placed mine, his hands were trembling because the last time he did that were for the admirals that he had served in the Navy. And to place it on his daughter was a dream come true for him. What did that feel like for you? It felt surreal. It felt like this was not necessarily my honor. It was his honor and all those men and women, mostly men who came before me, who had no idea. The enlistment had told me that when my orders came through at Bureau of Personnel in Tennessee, the Filipino yeomen and storekeepers were, were cheering. They said they were cheering. And I thought that meant so much to me, that it was in a way a victory for them that one of ours, one of ours came through. And I thought that was really cool. And it was the same way at USIS. 
because there was a big announcement. I was a student at the time and it was the same thing. One of ours is a flag officer. Yeah, it was it was amazing. It was an honor to represent that because you go beyond, it's not about me. It's about what we honor and what we respect and what we're able to achieve. But you know, being first has the obligation to hope that you're not the last, that you 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 may break the glass ceiling, but you reach down and you pull up for others to come through. You know, and I would always say if I was going through a rough patch, I always would say to myself, may my pain be somebody's gain. And and it it comes true now as I'm writing my second memoir about widowhood. I lost my husband three and a half years ago. I was suddenly widowed. And I researched how many widows in this country. Each year, there are at least between 700,000 to close to a million widows in America every year. There are 11.8 million widows. Many of them are are suddenly widowed. A large portion, I call them widows in waiting. They know their husband's going to die. They take care of them until they die. Uh, sadly, 10% of them uh, are, live in poverty internationally. They struggle. You lose the one you love, and then you have all these responsibilities. And I look at that, and I said, how can I help other women who lose their loved ones? How do you pick up and move on when part of you has died? Or does it have to die? Can it be reborn? So that's what I'm working with now. And I'm I'm launching my second podcast series called The Widow's Walk, the, the end of this month. And I will each month interview some aspect of widowhood. Actually, my first show, the end of this month, uh, the, the one that premieres, will be involving my husband, my late husband's mentor, who was a widower, and his girlfriend, who was a widow. And they happened to be visiting me in Scottsdale at the end of this month. And I said, oh, my gosh, well, you can stay in my guest condo. And I have the first episode of my radio show about widowhood. Would you be on my show? They're from Canada. That's how John met them. And they're they're delighted. And uh, she's a psychologist of all things. And he's an engineer. And I said, and she had actually uh, been awarded the Medal of Canada, which is their highest honor. So you've got a, a high achieving woman who is a widow who meets this widower after losing their spouses and they're happy together. I don't think they're, I don't think they've gotten married yet, but, and they're in their late seventies, early eighties. So they're going to be on my show of all things, but they show up the week I'm doing that. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that was, I think that was uh, coordinated by my late husband. His spirit is very strong. One of the things we talked about before hitting the record button was not only setting intentions, but bringing them to life. Because as you described, things don't just happen. There's mm-hmm. there's a reason behind it, but there's also a lot of intention behind it and behind the scenes, so to speak, mm-hmm. networking and getting to know others. You know, it's a good question because we talk about the first of the year. Every year, I I always have one of these paper calendars and it's blank, right? And it's exciting. And, and I don't, you know, I do it habitually every year for the last 30, 40 years, I get it, one of these blank calendars. And I go through and I enter certain milestones, like I put people's date of birth. I just do it in pen and, you know, ink pen, different color pen. And I go, here's my birthday and here's an anniversary. And I go through the calendar and it's like, but I like looking at that blank slate. And then I, I set the intention. What do I want to see manifest this year? What are my hopes and dreams and wishes for this year? And so you open yourself up for that hope that, you can bring that in. And I did that this year. I, I mentioned to you, I, I went to a one of my church ceremonies the end of December. It's called the Burning Bowl, where 
you write who or what you want to release in that year so that you start the new year without any baggage or something hovering over your head or grudges. So I intentionally wrote my late husband's name because it was time after three and a half years not to cry every day because you you cry a lot. I do. That's how I mourn. I cry all the time. I got tired of crying every day and, and I can sense him saying, I don't want you to be doing that anymore. He would not want me to do that. He'd actually won't want me to move on and find love again. And so I wrote his name down, put it in the fire pot and released it. And then the next, the last Sunday, actually the first Sunday of the new year, my church had this ceremony called the white stone ceremony, where you write on a piece of stone, what you want to see this year, you set an intention, almost a prayer, a hope, what you'd like to manifest for the new year. And I wrote love. I said, I'm open for love. I'm open to be loved and to receive love and to give love. And I think it's happening. And I will share later in this year, maybe if that does come true, because only 16 and 19% of widows remarry. Because as we say in the widow, that I don't want to be a nurse and I don't want to be a person. And there are reasons why widows don't remarry. Meanwhile, widowers, 61 to 70% of them remarry. And there are only about 4 million widowers. But men usually prefer to have a woman taking care of them. They want a partner. They want a best friend. They they don't want to be alone. They really don't want to be alone. Women don't easily remarry or widows don't easily remarry because they have like your group. They have women friends they can travel with, have dinner with, who look out for them. So they don't necessarily need a man. That's quite interesting. I, I read somewhere too, when men have money, a lot of money, they want women. When women have a lot of money, they don't want men. And I just find that fascinating. What you describe is it's mm-hmm. not just setting the intention, but it's really looking within and seeing how do I need to change for something to happen? What do I need to release? What's a perspective I need to take on? What do I need to be open to? Because being open in 2023, or at least in 2022, is not a default setting for most of us. It's a hard time being that, as you know, it's polarized, it's angry, it's negative. People are distanced. People are suffering silently. They're isolated. You know, they say random acts of kindness. I don't do random. I do intentional. I intentionally and deliberately want to be kind and focus on every human being, every soul I contact, be it the janitor, the person in the elevator, the CEO patient. When I go to lunch or dinner, people quote serving you because everyone's there. You you acknowledge, acknowledge them, their presence. You make eye contact, you smile, you know, I, I see you, you know, I acknowledge you. And it's as simple as that. I think social media has made it so difficult because people can gang up on each other and on some of these apps. And, and I don't, I don't watch TV anymore. I, I read the Wall Street Journal, you know, once in a while it's sitting there, but I stopped watching TV. I, I listen to oldies music whenever I work. I just got tired of watching TV. What do you say to the person who says, I don't even know what I want? They don't set intentions. I ask them if they dream, do you dream of something? And then I said, what does your behavior show you? What is it that you do that you feel the most alive? What is it you do where you're at your happiest, right? Um, I can tell with me when I procrastinate on something, I'm not really into it, right? Somebody will send me an email for a project. I'm like, oh, let me get to that later. But the things that 
make me come alive are the ones I go to right away. It's like, oh, I'm going to answer. Or this person who just emailed me about this project, I'm going to jump on that right away. It's going to head to the line. So start observing. Like when you get excited, what makes you come alive? What makes you smile? The other thing is among your friends, what do you talk about all the time? What is the topic? You know, it's like when we were in residency, internship and residency, how do you know what residency program you want to go into? Do you talk about being in the OR all day? Do you talk about the patient with the diabetes? Do you talk about the, the patient with a psychotic break- breakdown? I mean, when you're with your friends, what topic do you talk about that makes you come alive? So it's observing your own behavior. Go to the flip side. So the person who says, there's so many things I, I want to do, I don't know where to start. I think we need to clone ourselves. I said, the only problem is I wish I could clone because there's so many things I want to do. You, then the tough thing, Dina, is prioritize. How do I prioritize? There are all these competing things I want to do. In my case, I've got my practice, which is 24-7. The book I'm supposed to write, what I'm working on, I've got someone to help me. Then I've got my two radio shows. Then I've got my friends that I, I see. Then I've got my grandchildren. Then I've got other projects. And then, then you've got like, when do I have time to work out? right? Well, no, I have time to do all these. So I sleep, I become the night owl. I work late at night. I'm answering emails about one or two in the morning. When do I write? Between 10 and three in the morning. You know, that's when I write 10 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. Because my phone is quiet. I shouldn't be getting any texts or calls. And then I can just put the day away and just start writing. So you just have to prioritize. And I think for us who want to do everything, we can't. It's what's important at that moment for you. And it's tough when you have so many things you could do and you could do it well. What's the most important thing now do I need to do? I hear you saying a couple of things. One is enoughness. I think that's what we're talking about is allowing ourselves to be enough and to choose one or two things to prioritize and letting that be enough. Mm -hmm. Even if our mind wants to take us to all the other things that we could be doing. And the other thing is to be present, no matter what you're doing, to just be there, not be in all the other places thinking about all the other things, but to just be present in this moment. So if you're with your child, your grandchild, your spouse, you're really with them. You know, you have such good points about that. What comes to mind, I always, I tell people, I I look at what's important. It's really all you have left in this life are three T's. The most important is time. It's the end of the toilet paper for a lot of us, right? And the end of toilet paper roll goes goes faster and faster until you're totally done with the toilet paper. So the most important thing is time. How do you spend your time? The other is your talent. What is your talent? What is your gift to this world? What is your sole purpose? And the other three is your treasure. What is your tre- what do you treasure? I treasure obviously my time. I treasure my friends. Uh, I treasure my lifestyle because I'm spoiled. <laughs> I like to go shopping. I like to eat chocolate. I like to eat out. I like to be with my girlfriends and hang out. And I like to go do some trips. So how do you balance time, talent, and treasure, right? And then if you want to have a partner in life, how does that dance go? How do you dance with a new partner? And that's, that's I guess, the challenge for this year for me as I open up for love and am willing to be loved by somebody else who's not my husband yet. And am I open to that? I'll be 68 this month. So at 68, having been divorced after 29 years of marriage, having been widowed after nine years of marriage, am I ready, if it's the right guy, to remarry one last time? I I wait to see how this unfolds. 
never say no. You know, your plans are all in pencil. Don't write it in indelible ink. Just be open. And if it's spirit driven, it's better than what you ask for. That's what I believe in. If if it's truly the way of God and higher power and spirit, it's the most you've ever wanted. It's beyond that. It's beyond your dreams. Then that is the affirmation better than what you wanted. You've done incredible things in your life. Being at the White House for, I think it was 10 years, you've met people of all positions, holding all kinds of titles. And even still now within your network, just meeting incredible people, doing incredible things. What is that like? It's surreal in the sense that this is not me. It isn't, you try to get away from, it's not about me. It's about what good can we do from this? What did I learn from this? You can meet really famous people because who makes them famous is the cameras and the news, right? They're famous because they have a presence that everybody goes viral and they all know their name. But having taken care of people who are always in the spotlight, you see a different version of them. Sometimes it's very startling because they're not what they are in front of the camera. And as their physician, I always say you can judge a character by what they're like when things don't go their way. So as physicians, we don't see patients when they're feeling good necessarily. We, we see them when they're feeling bad. So how do they handle their illness, their bad diagnosis, their terminal illness? What is their conduct? What does it tell me about their character? And I, when I look at people who are my friends and actually people who work with me, what do they like when things don't go their way? What is your behavior? And that tells a lot to me. Also for famous people, the ones who are the most memorable are the most humble people. They don't let it get to their head. And that's important to remember. You can be in the spotlight right now, but I always say there's a reason you're in the spotlight. Don't make it about you. Make it about something better than you that you can help the people who are watching you. Because when you're in the spotlight, you've got everybody's attention. So don't waste their time. Give them a message they can use that, that they can take home. At the Women Warrior Healers Retreat, you mentioned that you had met a famous actor and the conversation that two dentists in the group yeah. were talking about the teeth. <laughs> yeah, what about his teeth? <laughs> you know, it's true. And and people look at that and, you know, only the, the, the healthcare workers, healthcare providers will know that because you'll see people go, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with this? Yeah, because everybody in essence, we'll need a, a physician, a healer, a dentist, a psychiatrist. I mean, in some way, you're going to need people in our field. It's inevitable, right? You can't go without it. It was so delightful. Like I, I it was completely unexpected to hear the specifics about the glamour. <laughs> Going back to humility, how do you maintain yours? I never forget where I came from. I never forget my roots. It really struck me when President Clinton visited the Philippines. He did a state visit to the Philippines over 20 years ago. And we're going down the streets of Manila. It's called Tondo. It's the most poverty-stricken part of Manila. And you've got this 18-car motorcade, and I'm in the spare limousine. It's armored. So usually the spare limousine is in front of the beast, his limousine. It's called the decoy. It's like, oh, okay. That means my limousine blows up, so his doesn't. So we're the decoy. So anyway, I'm in this armored limo, and I've got his assistant beside me. He's sitting beside me in the back seat. You've got the driver and the and the secondary agent in the front. And then the jump seats have two other agents from the shift with Uzis. That's when you're overseas. So I'm looking out the glass, the window facing the street, and it's armored. And I see these little children who don't have shoes. They're, they're poor kids. 
coming up to the glass and they're touching it and they're waving and I'm waving to them and they're touching the glass on the limo. Nobody stops them. We're going very slow. And it struck me. It's only by the grace of God that I'm on this side of the glass, that I'm in this limousine from the United States of America. And I'm not one of these little street urchins who's waving to the parade. I was placed here and I can't waste that opportunity to do something about it, to do something good. And one of the things I've seen in patients, I have patients who are billionaires, absolutely incredible wealth. They're unhappy. They have the wealth of kings and they're empty and unhappy because things don't fill you up. It's not things. And if you make it about you, you will never be happy. If you make it about something else or somebody else, then you'll find the happiness. But if it's about you, nothing ever feel, I call it the hole in the soul. Things don't fill it, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, nothing fills it. Status, ego, that doesn't fill the hole in soul. What fills it is giving it away. When you give it away, your talent, your knowledge, your love, that's when you feel, that's when you feel whole. I really think so. I think you feel that. Can you share what that has looked like in your life? What has created that sense of wholeness as vague or as specific as you want to be? I think I've always been reminded by my parents. It's not a healthy mantra, but growing up, it was always the mantra, you're never good enough. So why did they, you know, people say, what's your secret to success? I said, well, in the back of my mind, I can hear my parents say, you're never good enough. So you have to create, you know, don't, don't rest on your laurels. Don't, don't get a big head about this. So they almost beat that into you. So you sort of throttle back and say, well, you know, you may think you're riding high, but you know, if you, you're too pompous about it, you're going to have to pay a price. I always think of that. So you just pull that back, but you balance it with, if I serve a higher purpose, if I'm in a lot of ways, a messenger of hope and of health, then I, I can be okay with that. And that brings me joy. I had lunch the other day with one of my friends here, and she's my age, she's 67, and she is dying of breast cancer. Her cancer came back, they've tried every medicine, every protocol, and now she's on experimental protocol. And she says, this will be the last time we meet in this life. And I said, I know it is. And so I asked her, at this point in your life, what is important to you? And she said, it's important to me to know that my life had meaning. I would be remembered for something. So the two things that struck her as she's getting ready to die, her life had purpose, it had meaning, and that we will remember her. And I think that's important. How will people remember you? What was your life about, right? An exercise I ask some of my patients is to write your obituary. The other is, I ask people, what would you want people to say about you at your funeral? Because I've given eulogies for my cousin, my, actually my aunt and uncle who died of murder suicide in California, their daughter who died six months later of ovarian cancer. So those are three eulogies, my mother's eulogy, my father's eulogy, and my husband's eulogy. I'm really tired of giving eulogies. I'd rather do weddings. What does an extraordinary life look like for you this year? It's one where if this is the person who's meant to be, he will sweep me off my feet. We'll have time together. We will laugh and we will dance. I think that that would be it. The other part would be that my TV series that from my first book, The White House Doctor, it's been optioned 2021. It's on hold in uh, the studios. So that moves forward. And then the other hope 
is that my book gets done on widowhood because I really need to finish that book. I've got parts of it written, but I need to put it together and send it to the publisher and publish it because I think other widows can be helped. But I also think for me in a selfish way, it's my healing that if I can finish the book and release it, then I would have graduated from widowhood and moved on to the next stage. I need to do that. So your first book is extraordinary. It's called The White House Doctor. I and many others didn't want it to end. We're like, no, no, this is too good. We also didn't want to put it down every time we would start to read a chapter. Thanks. Uh, An incredible book. Highly recommend to anyone, medical, non-medical, military, non-military, it doesn't matter. Thank you. What does everyone need to know? That's a great question. Be good to yourself. Because, you know, overachieving women beat themselves up a lot of times. We all have to-do lists. And a lot of times we're the last ones on our to-do list. So take time to breathe. Take time to be silent. Take time to just be open. I always think that God or spirit whispers. God doesn't shout. It's in your moments of silence. It's usually when I drive alone and I'm silent. I have these great ideas. It's like, I wish I can pull over and write this down or dictate it. Be open to that. Be open to grow. And don't box yourself in. And if you have this inkling of something that that you think is crazy, why did you go with that? Just try it out. Allow yourself the freedom to change and grow. I think you'd surprise yourself. There's a lot of us stereotype ourselves and say, well, I'm just going to do this forever. But it may not be your path of growth. Maybe the best growth is something disruptive for you. And it's okay to be brave to do that. It's funny. I work with a lot of high achievers. And one of the things in common is if we don't know how to do something, we don't allow ourselves to want it. Mm -hmm. So the, I don't know what I want is generally, I don't know how to do Mm -hmm. what it is I really want. And it seems really scary. So I can't want it. Well, also we have to do it well, right? I'm not going to do it unless somebody goes, why don't you play golf again? Because I can't be really good at it. Well, why don't you just do it? Because I don't want to look stupid. You know, it's like, why don't you play cards? Because I can't add that quickly. Because we're competitive. We want to be, I asked one of my friends the other day, she she runs a software company. And I said, do you cook? She says, honey, I only do what I do well. I just eat out. I, I don't cook. Final thoughts. Well, first of all, I'm delighted to have finally met you in person, Dina and Lori and, and the group. And I think your group of women are amazing, that it's really the sisterhood that unites us as women, as successful women as physicians, as healers. And I think you should just keep doing what you're doing. I think you do a lot of good for the listeners, but for the people who like me are blessed to be on your show, it does me a world of good too, to be able to validate how I'm feeling and to share it and hope that somebody is going to get something from this that will help them. I can't thank you enough for being part of our lives, for being a woman warrior healer, for being a leader, a mentor, someone who uses her voice to really build and lift up others and for being part of my life. So thank you truly for being here today and for all that you have done for us. Thanks, Dina. God bless you. Have a wonderful year to you and everybody listening. God bless you all.